Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Lance Egan, and he'll be answering your questions on adaptive fly fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Lance a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form on the right column of our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms that you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the distribution platforms and your convenience and listen to the recordings at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, just use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. Um, and in fact, if you have a moment to do it right now, go ahead. We have uh, those share buttons right on the homepage of the website, and uh, you can do that while we're talking. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Lance Egan about adaptive fly fishing. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectation that the anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Lance, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in a drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Lance's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Lance and Devin Olson's DVD uh, called Adaptive Fly Fishing Strategies for Diverse Water Types. So here's how you can win this uh, DVD. You must be the first person to answer the question I ask at the end of the show. It could be a two-part question, so uh, take good notes. Uh, the question will be about something that Lance and I talk about during the show. Uh, so submit your answer along with your name and your location in the form on our homepage. It's the same form that you can use to ask questions during the show. And, uh, and then maybe you'll win uh, Lance's uh, DVD, Adaptive Fly Fishing. So... Um, Take notes, like I said, type fast, and uh, let's see if you win. Our guest tonight is Lance Egan. Lance has had a passion for fly fishing for more than 27 years and has made a career of fly fishing. Having worked for an all-tackle store, two independent fly shops, and 12 years with Cabela's, he has worked with thousands of anglers and aided each in learning more about the fish they intend to catch, along with teaching them the benefits and advantages of various types of tackle and rigging. 
All the while, Lance has been a student of the sport and continues to learn about the intricacies of fishing. Currently, Lance works for Fly Fish Food, an online and storefront fly fishing retailer in Orem, Utah, as shop manager. In addition, his fly shop duties, he's a part-time fly fishing guide and instructor, a signature fly designer for Umqua Feather Merchants, and Lance, along with Devin Olson and Gilbert Rowley, created instructional fly fishing videos available as digital downloads, Vimeo, or as DVDs, including Modern Nymphing, Modern Nymphing Elevated, and now Adaptive Fly Fishing, their latest. Lance lives in Lehigh, Utah, with his wife, Autumn, and their two children. Lance, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hey, thanks, Roger. Yeah, good to have you uh, this hot summer night. <laughs> it has so been a hot I one. Assume it's, yeah. Oh, man, man, yeah. So uh, I'm in Boulder right now. I'd rather be up in the mountains where I normally am, but uh, this is where I am and uh, sitting here uh, sweating. So. <laughs> but we'll get through this. <laughs> All right. So uh, lots of questions, Lance. Um, uh, lots of people want to know. How to catch fish, right? Which is what we're all about. But uh, that's right. Much more specifically than that. And so we we've got a, just kind of a random bunch of questions, all good ones. Uh, and then I want to kind of maybe hit some uh, spots out of your DVD and share some of the learning that you provide in that DVD and give some people some tips there. So we'll um, we'll get through these questions that were sent in first, and then we'll we'll dive into some of those techniques uh, you have in your DVD. Sound good? Sounds great. Okay, all right. Um, so Steve Bossy in San Diego wrote in and says, do you adapt methods like tight line, dry, dry dropper, indicators, et cetera, based on water type and angler's physical abilities? Uh, I guess when I'm guiding, I do a little bit. Yes, you when you're, you know, you're guiding, you kind of have to figure out in the first half an hour to hour what kind of an angler you have in front of you. Everybody usually, uh, I would I would argue most anglers uh, are overconfident in their abilities and uh, oversell what they, you know, their experience level. So you're always trying to take stock of, you know, what can they and can't they do and what do you need to try and help this person or these people learn each day. Uh, so you certainly adapt methods. Uh, for me, most of my guiding consists of people that hire me to learn Euronymphing, uh, at least the first time through, and then uh, oftentimes I get repeat clients that want to do that as well as dry fly fishing or streamer fishing or whatever else we might uh, they might want to tackle once for their own techniques. But uh, yeah, I mean you you adapt methods definitely based on the physical abilities and based on their experience level. Some some techniques are a little harder to cast, harder to handle. You know, a single dry fly, for instance, is quite easy to cast. Not necessarily easy to fish, but uh, for somebody that hasn't fished very very much, they would have an easier time casting a single dry than they would, say, a pair of tandem streamers. So, yeah, yeah we definitely yeah. adapt methods. Yeah. And I know with a lot of people as we age, me included, you know, waiting gets more difficult, you know, to, to just get mm -hmm. out in the water. So I, I'm sure that's something as far as physical abilities you, you encounter quite regularly. But, um, yeah, um, yes. uh, John Earl in Oregon, he says um, he wants to know how to fight wind and get nymphs down fast. And you had a couple mm -hmm. of sequences in your, your DVD on that. So um, Yeah, we, uh, we do in several. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in all three of them, it, I think, it, we tackle wind to some degree. Yeah, yeah. So um, th those are kind of, uh, well, they can both 
need to happen uh, at the same time. But um, mm -hmm. uh, do you want to kind of address that and maybe uh, just a, a particular example of uh, yeah, getting sure. NIMS down fast? Um, yeah. I, you know, I guess he's, if he's talking specifically nymphs down fast, he's probably leaning more towards uh, Euro-style nymphing more than indicator. If he's with the indicator rig, you're going to use the weight of the, the sinkers, if you will, the, the split shot you're going to add to the leader to get him down fast. So with the Euro rig, uh, to get down fast with, with wind, you want to put slightly heavier flies on oftentimes to stay in better contact. Uh, it helps a lot to have a super thin leader. The less diameter, the less surface area you have for the wind to blow, uh, the less effect it has on your leader. So if you're fishing a thicker leader, thicker, let's say, for your nymphing purposes, might be in the 20-pound, 15-pound leader material range. And if you drop that down to 10 or 12, it's going to lessen the effect of the wind. And if you drop it down to, you know, four or six-pound test, it's going to lessen it even more. And then uh, you also need to, uh, you know, fish shorter. If it's really windy, it's best to fish pretty close to you. Uh, and then use a, r a lower rod angle rather than really high sticking uh, to, you know, again, limit that surface area of the leader and fly line that are off the water for the wind to blow around. So a low rod, and then uh, another way to get nymphs down fast is to go really thin tippet. So just like your leader getting thin uh, subsurface, you don't have to deal with the wind, but you still have to deal with current, so getting thinner tippet or using thinner tippet would help get your nymphs down very fast in addition to using tuck cast or a you know casting technique that allows the flies to plummet. Yeah, I noticed that uh, on your DVD you were talking about, I think, uh, I can't remember if it was you or Devin, but um, uh, about using, uh, I think it was like a 6X uh, leader down to your uh, nymphs when you were your own nymphing just to cut the drag on the line in the water. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't realize you guys got that down that thin uh, when doing that. I, I don't Yeah, you sure can. I don't fish that thin commonly but you sure can some that's kind of the latest trend in the most you know cutting edge uh european style nymphing uh co competitors at least are getting down to 5x and 6x diameter leader material for if not the the bulk of their leader their entire leader oftentimes right uh, yeah. including the cider and then fishing down from there i've been mostly fishing one that's about 4x diameter somewhere in the 3 to 4x diameter and that, just so we don't confuse people we're not using 4x you know, nylon or fluorocarbon tip, but it's a leader material uh, that is about the same diameter as as tippet, but it's got a little more stiffness, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ari Young in California asked, "What's your favorite pure dry fly rod?" <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I would have to probably ask another question to really answer it based on what kind of dry fly, what size of dry fly are we throwing? Are we, you know, are we wading? Are we in a drift boat? I use different rods for, you know, my fly craft or my high drift boat fishing than I do uh, when I'm wade fishing, for instance. I tend to like a 9'5 weight or maybe a 10'4 weight from the boat, and I tend to fish more like a 10'2 or 10'3 weight when I'm wade fishing for dry fly rods. Um, I've been okay. using I've been using a Sage X or a Loomis Asquith uh, five weights and and ten foot fours uh, on the Sage X again and then uh, when I'm in a boat and then when I'm wade fishing I've been using either a Sage Mod and a nine foot two weight or a Sage ESN and a ten foot two weight and I just actually I have a new Thompson Thomas Contact two ten uh, foot two weight that I haven't yet used for dry flies, but I'm, I'm hoping that that will become one of my new favorite dry fly rods. Boy, you're, everything is 10, 
10 foot, huh? <laughs> uh, we, we do tend to use a lot of long rods, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I could see the advantages of that in, in some of the sequences, uh, you know, on your DVD when you were urine-nymphing, um, you know, crossing currents, that kind of thing. Yeah, so. Mm -hmm. um, Chris in North Carolina says, uh, why is it more challenging to nymph for fish in general upstream rather than across stream, and what adjustments do you make? Well, I guess the it's it's a little more challenging to approach fish from straight downstream and uh, cast directly upstream with a Euro system. Uh, I think that's mostly the case when you're trying to fish straight up a bank, and I think it mostly comes down to casting control and accuracy because it really isn't too much harder. Um, it is certainly easier, I notice, for most folks to cast across, up and across with a Euro system. Uh, I think you don't have to be quite as accurate. You don't have to avoid overhangs on a, a you know, a bankside lie or pockets on the edges of the river. So that might be one of the challenges. I guess if you're fishing straight upstream of you when you're when you're leading the flies, keeping contact with the flies, sometimes it's an advantage. If it's pretty short distance, you can just lift the leader and cider straight up. If it, you're fishing out there away, sometimes it's better to lift up and out. You know, if you're fishing up a bank, looking upstream at the, the river bank, nearest bank on your left-hand side, and you were fishing straight up that bank, it might be best to cast, you know, straight along the bank and then lead downstream and out to your right slightly, uh, out towards the main current to give yourself a little more room to take up slack and also set the hook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I suppose at times it, it, it might just make sense to move too. Right. Um, Certainly, yeah. Trying, yeah, that's yeah. One thing that's overlooked a lot. Yeah, yeah. You try to do everything from one spot, but at times it, it takes. And I think probably what he's getting at is getting that fly to come down first, rather than mm -hmm. you know everything else on your rigs. So I, I bet you that's what he's after. Uh, he also had another question. He says, uh, "Do you use CDC dries for a dry dropper, or mainly just when fishing single dries?" Do you use mainly CDC dries these days over traditional parachute or hair wing style patterns? Um, hmm. Does he know something I don't? Does CDC one of your things, or is, is this just the? I don't. I don't know what he knows there. I, I do use oh, okay. dries, but I also <laughs> I also use uh, parachutes. I don't use hair wing style patterns much. I um, I really haven't much for a long while. Uh, there's nothing wrong with them per se. They just take more time to tie and. Uh, I, I do believe that there's a trend, at least in competition circles, there's a trend more towards CDC dries um, for the ease of smaller fish, let's say, like grayling in particular. Uh, a lot of the competitions we do are held in parts of Europe that have trout and grayling. And the grayling have a smaller mouth, and so if you put a bushy elk or caddis out there, a, caddis or a grayling will try and eat it but they don't often get it in their mouth. So mm. having, it doesn't have to necessarily be CDC, but having a softer fly with it's less hackle, you know, not a, not a bushy hackle, uh, you know, like a stimulator would have. A lot of the traditional, let's call them, you know, semi-classic Western trout flies, wolves and humpies and, and stimulators yeah. and elk caddis are, are not as common in a competitor's box. Um, I think okay. part of that's because they take too long to tie, and some of the everybody's into efficiency, and uh, some of that is just uh, pure performance. They just don't they don't allow every fish to get them in as well, so you miss a few extra fish on those stiffer material flies. Yeah, and I suppose in competition fishing, you're not looking, you're generally uh, trying to catch the, the most fish, not necessarily the largest fish, or you're not looking at, you know, trophy brown trout that you're hooking up with, so. 
smaller, more delicate yeah, lies would make sense, right? You're usually limited to a very small section of river, so you're really trying to catch all the fish, whatever technique right. will produce as many fish as you can. Big fish are actually worth more than small fish, but you know people forget that you're in a competition setting. You're limited to 100 to maybe at the you know really big beat would be 300 yards of river for three hours. Yeah. So you don't yeah. really have the luxury of saying, I'm going to target only large fish or small fish. You you are trying to just catch everybody you can using any <laughs> legal technique. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dino in Michigan, he asks about, uh, and, and I, again, I, I in your DVD, you're talking about temperature quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. But he asks, uh, any special tips for very cold, slow water, as in overwintering Great Lakes steelhead and brown trout? No, that's a good question. I don't have any experience with Great Lakes steelhead, so I, I could only guess there. We do fish for brown trout a lot locally in cold, slow water all winter long, and I would imagine that uh, some of the techniques might overlap there. Uh, special tips for cold, slow water. So the, I would argue the most effective technique that's new to me, at least, uh, newer to me the last you know, five or six years anyway, is the, the jig streamer technique on the Euro system. So using as thin a leader as you can, you can possibly, you know, manage casting accurately and, and having control, and then using a, a streamer that is relatively small. We usually tie them in like size, oh, a six would be a big one. You know, let's say size 12 through six, tens and twelves being most common, and kind of simple little bugger or leech style patterns, or a, a very slim minnow imitation, or maybe a, a really dense uh, sculpin. But most of the, the pre-made streamers you'd find in fly shop bins wouldn't be dense enough to do this. You'd have to build them yourselves. But using a jig streamer technique where you throw into a pool with deep, slow water, and when the fish are, are stacked into that water type, when the water temperature is very cold like it would be in winter, you can very slowly, rather than stripping a streamer, you cast it in and let it sink like you would a pair of nymphs. And then as it gets near the bottom, you slowly twitch it back um, with the rod high still, with the leader up in the air, you're, you know, you're not stripping streamers like you normally would. You'd be lifting and dropping with the rod, uh, staying in contact with the streamer and, and keeping a streamer in their face for a long time rather than, you know, retrieving a streamer would move it past the fish very quickly. And I would argue that's, in the wintertime, that's become one of my go-to techniques when the fish are really potted up in slow water. That works really, really well. Otherwise, just getting thin tippet with nymphs and, uh, you know, getting down and getting the nymphs moving very slow, uh, water type, as he's kind of alluding to here, and an overwintering, you know, yeah. slow, very cold, slow water is, is a very big deal in, in winter. A lot of times people that fish in the summertime go and fish the heads of runs and places where they'd find fish in July and August, and in winter they're just not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Craig in Portland, Oregon, uh, he says, do you ever get into a situation where fish just won't eat? Yeah, of course, everybody does, right? Uh, not, <laughs> I was hoping you were going to not very. <laughs> yeah, well, I think anybody that says they're, they've been a lifelong fisher and have never been skunked, they probably tell you all their fish are giant too, right? They're telling yeah, lies. But, yeah, uh, yeah I, you know, I just, in fact, I just got skunked for the first time in, in a couple of years probably, well, trout fishing anyway, a couple of years. Uh, just last week I went to a high alpine lake that I thought, the temperatures would be cool enough to target the fish there. The water was lower than I expected it to be. And I did hook a couple of fish, but they, I was fishing for some very large fish. And 
uh, the one really big fish that I hooked didn't uh, didn't come to the net. So I, I got skunked very recently. So yes, it definitely happens. It doesn't happen very often on rivers. I find that you know if you're fishing rivers in times where the water temperatures are, let's say between you know not frozen and uh, and maybe the mid 60s when you start pushing upper 60s, it's probably best to leave our our trout alone. But but yeah, prime temperatures, you know, anywhere in the 40s to low low 60s, let's say, uh, it's it's pretty tough. You have to be doing a lot of things wrong, I think, to not catch any fish on a lot of our western waters that have, you know, high fish populations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much? But it does uh, happen. Uh, yeah. How much does the water temperature guide you in your approach for the, you know, for the day? Or, you know, uh, morning versus afternoon? Quite a bit, really. A lot of our, so even in the heat we're having right now, you know, locally we're getting right near 100 degrees most days in the valley. And if you're up into the mountain valleys, you're you're probably in the high 80s to maybe even low 90s, which is really warm for us this time of year, right? So even with those temperatures, our tailwater fisheries locally, everybody thinks we'll be fishing best early in the morning. And the, actually the, the opposite is true. We're, we're, the fishing is best, I would argue, from about oh, 12, 30, 1 o'clock until dark. Uh, and a lot of that's because the water comes out of the dam, at, you know, at, at, out of the dams, I should say. There's several tailwaters nearby, but most of the, the reservoirs are releasing water in the low 50s to maybe the high 50s. And so although that's a good temperature for fish, they get really, really active when it gets to the high 50s, the low 60s. And so the, I pay attention to that a lot. Uh, where I spend most of my time guiding on Utah's middle Provo River we find most of our large fish we catch in the afternoons in the summer once the water's warmed up. Uh, there's kind of some patterns to flies and water types that we can target some of those larger fish once the water temps get into that high 50, low 60 range. Okay, okay. Um, so we pay a lot, a lot of attention yeah, to it. Yeah. Peter Rogers in Sonoma, California, wrote in and says, when I approach a stream, I usually have an idea of what bugs should be active based on the time of year. I'm looking for activity, fish feeding, bugs on the surface, or in the current when choosing a pattern based on those observations. So if I were to begin Euro-nymphing, do I need to throw this mindset out and just concentrate on fishing water current structure and bright flies? Mm. Well, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> you need to throw that out a little bit because I think you'll find quickly uh, if you're getting into your nymphing as most of us have that the fly pattern, your confidence in the fly pattern has a much greater effect on its effectiveness than the fly pattern itself. You know, people will argue that till they're blue in the face, but I can tell you from lots and lots of years of competing on teams where your your teammates are from different parts of the country or have different home water or are even from different countries and you you chat about what what worked for each angler you know that just taking the US team for example when we go to a world championship or to a national championship we're on a five man team we all pre-fish for several days to a week before the event we're all fishing the same rivers at the same time and at dinner time or, or shortly after dinner time, we usually meet and share all of the water types that worked best for us, the fly patterns that worked best for us, the techniques that worked best for us, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, long story short, all the flies that everybody uses are quite a bit different, yet everybody yields about the same results. So the fly, as much as I would like to say that you have to buy 
all of my fly patterns that are available from Umpqua, they work the best. <laughs> they, the truth of the matter, and I, you know, I do like my patterns, right? I'm, I'm confident yeah. in my flies, and I'm confident if you try them, they're going to work for you too. But the bottom line is, you know, my friend Devin that I do, do our videos with, Devin Olson, he has, you know, some, some of our patterns overlap, but he has some confidence flies that are different than mine. And our friend Pat Weiss would be the same way, and, and Russ Miller and Josh Grafflin and a lot of the guys, you know, we've done championships with over the last few years would all have their own confidence flies so i don't think you have to fish necessarily um, they don't have to be outlandish bright flies but they could be you can also euronymph with uh you know very imitative stuff you can throw you know make a split case pmd and just tie a, a tungsten head on it and you're you're very imitative and you can still euronymph with something like that i just i don't think that the Euro technique, I think, uh, I guess, is it maybe presents flies better in many water types. Not in all. It's not the end-all, be-all. But in a lot of water types, I think a Euro system allows you to get a better drift. And I think, therefore, you can get away with some crazier flies that are oversized and look kind of crazy, you know, look wonky. They're, they're bright sometimes, and they have hot spots, and they don't really imitate anything in particular. And that really messes with our heads as fly fishers because we're taught match the hatch, and we're taught to... Uh, that trout are really selective, and trout are—they can be, but they're often very opportunistic. So, a lot of times, just yeah, getting a fly yeah. to the right depth in the right water type and being in contact with it is much more important than whether it's tan or brown or olive. You know. Right. Right. So yeah. So summary is uh, a little of both, right? I mean, yes. If you want to be imitative, uh, like I'm thinking of the Frenchie, you know, which is just kind of a. Mm -hmm. Uh, tungsten-headed pheasant tail almost, right? I mean, it's, Correct. it's um, yeah, yeah, so it's not that much different other than it rides lower in the water and might be on a jig hook or something, but uh, yeah, yes. um, yeah, so um, good. So I hope that was helpful to Peter, and uh, dive yeah, hopefully in. Hopefully we didn't uh, throw go, go do yeah. it. <laughs> go do it. Um, Enjoy it. Have fun. Yeah. Uh, Joe Hunt in California is... Um, he says, how do you decide where to fish on a lake, and how do you decide which technique to use? For example, coronamid under indicator versus stripping a streamer. Also, I own and love your three videos with Devin. Uh, do you plan on making a video on still water approaches? That's a good question. So kind of a diversion from our, uh, you know, our, our adaptive fly fishing is all covering rivers. But, uh, I mean, this is kind of a tough one to answer in the time we have because how do you decide which technique to use, chronomids versus stripping streamers, we could talk for hours about. But uh, yeah. uh, one day we may do a still water video. We don't have plans to do one in the near future, um, mostly because we think that, that you have to be able to, you know, unfortunately in today's world you've got to be able to make money on a video you send out. And there aren't as many still water anglers as there are river anglers. So. Yeah, we, we have decided yeah. right at this moment we're not going to do that, but I I wouldn't say we'll never do one. As far as is that to, something you? To, I was going to say yeah. is that something uh, you face? I remember, I think it was one of the first uh, competitions in in Colorado, like 2006 or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. You had to fish a lake as part of your competition. Uh, is that mm -hmm. is there always a lake as part of your competition? Uh, you always no, but. But the okay. majority of the time, yes. There are, I would say, okay. the most common setup in a five-session competition would be three rivers and two lakes. The lakes are probably the most overlooked part of, of competition fish. 
you uh, you know everybody I guess I would argue is is a river specialist there are obviously some anglers that are better than others at rivers but uh, one of the ways the U.S. team has made up some ground, I think, is that we've become quite good at the lakes. I wouldn't dare say we're the best at them, but we, we've done quite well on the lakes in the last, you know, five to ten years, and traditionally we wouldn't have done that. And the lakes have made up for some of our poorer river sessions. Uh, when we sometimes struggle on a river, we can oftentimes, you know, make up for it on the lakes. So, yeah, it's definitely mm-hmm. a part of the competition scene. It's also a part of just my, my own fun fishing. I love fishing lakes. I have several different types of boats to fish lakes from and, and try and target them whenever water temperatures are prime on the lakes, for sure. Uh, yeah. As far as when to fish a chronomid versus a streamer, that's hard to say because you can oftentimes catch them both ways. It's just a, you know, that's like saying, should you fish a, an indicator rig on a, on a river or a euro-nymphing rig? Well, you can probably catch them both ways. You might target slightly different water. There are times and places where fish really get dialed into small bugs when there's nothing but chronomids around, usually that's going to, you know, fishing a small chronomid is going to produce a lot more fish than streamers. And on the flip side of that, if the fish are up in the shallows eating minnows and crayfish and leeches, then, you know, fishing chronomids is still probably going to produce a few, but maybe not as many as what the fish are focused on. Yeah. Uh, And I did do a a show with Devin on lock style fishing, so that would be Mm -hmm. something Joe might be interested in. Uh, For sure, and, and taking a look at on our site because that's that's an interesting way to do lake fishing if you've got a boat. So, um, but Most uh, yeah, no oh, whole other conversation, like you say, Lance. Um, uh, Don in Bozeman, Montana, wrote in. He says, with all your experience fishing world championships, could you give a brief rundown on different areas around the world that might be particularly desirable? fly fishing destinations, including areas that would be suitable for do-it-yourselfers without a guide. So any particular standouts in all your travels? Uh, yeah, there's some standouts. I think the standouts are places I've traveled. Uh, you know, New Zealand certainly is not a hidden, you know, it's not a secret, but uh, that's an amazing place right. to be. Slovenia has some beautiful fishing and, and amazing trout, the marble trout, some great uh, brown trout fishing, grayling fishing. They have hook in there. That's a great place to visit. Northern Italy was a real shocker for me. The first, we've been to Italy a couple times at the championships, and the first time we went, I didn't really know what to expect. But I guess I didn't. I don't think uh, you know Italy and fly fishing are synonymous necessarily. I I was uh, I was very wrong. They they have great fishing in Italy and some beautiful fisheries. And again, marble trout and brown trout and rainbows and grayling and, uh, and that's a place that stands out. Uh, otherwise. I oftentimes go around the world and find that the fishing in my backyard is as good or better than most places I've visited. I, we have it pretty good in the American <laughs> West for sure, and, and I think the East, uh, most Westerners would be surprised at how good the fishing is in the Eastern U.S. as well if you haven't you know, visited the, yeah. some of the, the Eastern waters. We have it really good here in the U.S., and, uh, well, not and, and they, notice you know, where, Europe isn't great. But. Notice where Don is from, Bozeman. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you could live in worse worse places, you know, to go fishing. I don't right? think there are any fish uh, left in Bozeman. Yeah, no, no, none. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's take a quick break here, Lance, and then uh, we'll come back. We'll talk. Uh, try to get more of these questions answered for these folks. Sound good? Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well versed in fly fishing the beach and kayaks on pongas and are well versed in all tackle ties. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack preval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Mask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Lance Egan about adaptive fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Lance a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Lance, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you work and, and, and what you do and, and what's coming up on the, the horizon for you. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm married to my lovely wife, Autumn. We have two kids and uh, my, all of my family likes to fish. So I spend a lot of time chasing fish with them and trying to teach my little ones who are right at the moment, 10 and 7, uh, kind of about the things that I love to do. And I'm lucky enough to have a wife that also likes to fish. So we have a lot of fun in the outdoors. Uh, work-wise, uh, I work for Fly Fish Food, which is a retail store in Orem, Utah. And then we also have a uh, online presence. We have I would argue one of the larger uh, fly tying and just fly fishing selections in general on, on planet Earth, probably fly tying especially is our specialty. We love to tie flies, and we have a YouTube channel that features a lot of our latest creations. Uh, otherwise, I do a little bit of guiding, and uh, and I try and you know fit in some time to to uh, tie more flies and uh, and work with Devin and Gilbert on projects like Modern Nymphing, Modern Nymphing Elevated, and Adaptive Fly Fishing and, and try and share what we have learned over the years and has made our, our outings more successful with everybody else so everybody can have a good time while they're out fishing. Right, right. Uh, fly Fish Food, is it flyfishfood.com? Is that the domain? It, there, that, is, uh, that is one of our, that's kind of our uh, blog page, if you will, our, our, our shop page, if you wanted to do web shopping, is store.flyfishfood.com. Oh, store.flyfishfood.com. Okay, there you mm -hmm. go. So, everybody, uh, check them out, and uh, if you're over in Utah uh, or thinking about going to Utah, be sure to give Lance a call and uh, uh, yeah, have swing him take in. you out. Yes. Yeah, yeah, do it. All right, good. Um, uh, more questions. Um, Ray Rivera uh, in Utah. He says, "Seems like summer mm -hmm. for us, for as lucrative as it can be, uh, can be a tough day on any water since most of our popular hatches are done. Uh, what are some of your go-to tactics for productive uh, summer fishing?" That's a good question. I know Ray. Ray is a customer of ours. He stops in here frequently. He's a nice guy. We like Ray. Oh, so. Oh. I would argue if, if Ray hasn't already, he ought to get uh, our, our nymphing and uh, especially our, our nymphing DVDs, but also adaptive fly fishing would help uh, learn the, the things you can do on a tough summer day because it's a lot of, about water type. You know, when there are no hatches, 
that are at least no dense hatches where the fish aren't showing themselves readily as far as where they're holding and that sort of thing. It becomes more of a reading the water, and uh, reading water has a lot to do with water temperature, so grab yourself a thermometer and uh, keep track of the water temperature early in the day versus middle of the day versus maybe evening time and see. You know, I would encourage people to even take notes as to, even if it's just mental notes, but if you have your phone with you, you can jot down some notes while you're out in the water real quickly as far as what, which water types you found fish in at different parts of the day. Uh, one of our techniques around here, again, is, is in the heat of the summer, is to fish really fast water. Uh, I tease everybody in the shop all day long. They'll come in and say, it's fishing a little slow. And, and I'll say, man, did you, you fish fast water? And they'll say, yeah, I tried fast water. And, and then you kind of show them a video, a quick video of a short section of the river or something and, and say, so if you look at this, where would you fish? And inevitably they say, talk about the edges. And I have to always explain, if you think it's way, way, way too fast to fish, then that's probably perfect. It might even be too slow. Uh, you, you you got to get yeah. into the our brown brown trout and rainbows well fast fast water when those water temps creep into that high 50 to low 60 range it's almost it almost can't be too fast it can be too fast for you to effectively get a presentation but I would argue there are still fish in the super fast water uh, so that yeah. would be a trick otherwise just covering water a lot I think Ray would help uh, you know when, when you're the water's lower and it's bright sun. And it's quite hot outside. It's probably best not to stay put too long. Just keep covering water. Look for fresh fish. And as uh, Cheech that I work with here in the shop always says, just look for more dumb fish. You know, find find the dumb ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I definitely think Ray would benefit from watching your you know adaptive fly fishing DVD because I don't think there was a hatch going on in any of those sequences. Um, and uh, I don't know how you guys did it, but like on command, you caught a fish exactly when you were supposed to be catching it. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, kudos to you. Either that or you, you had a lot of takes. <laughs> I mean, we get uh, a lot know, of filming takes. takes. <laughs> yeah. I, I know what you mean, filming takes. We do yeah. often have to, to, to do a few takes, but uh, it's amazing how often it happens really fast. Yeah. You know, if you're, you're setting yourself up, in the videos we set ourselves up in places where, you know, we're quite confident there are fish here. We're quite confident mm -hmm. in our flies and our technique. And so if we... Are you know within a couple of one two three casts you know maybe eight or ten casts max you should be hooking a fish and that's usually where we try and set up our shots because yeah, yeah. you know nobody wants to you can tell people how great a technique is all day and every day but if you don't show them that it works it, nobody believes <laughs> yeah. it so you got to be able to <laughs> catch true. a fish on command but yeah, uh, yeah the, the DVDs would help I think for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I call them DVDs. Uh, we should say the videos because they are available digitally too. You don't have to have a DVD player. You can get them from Vimeo as, as a digital download. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bacchus uh, in Camarillo, California, wrote, uh, Lance, can you you can choose a season, but how often are you swapping out flies or changing depth when you are fishing? Ideally, I would love to know the frequency when you have an opportunity to fish water where fish are holding in different types so that you would actually be fishing pools to riffles to soft side water. So I'm not quite sure about the last part of his question, but uh, but that's a common question that always comes up is, you know, when do you change up? How often? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say because uh, it, it, a lot of that comes down to how confident you are in your presentation and in your flies. Um, you know, for me, if it's water that I fished a lot, I, I know, you know, let's just use my, my home water here. The Provo River has, oh, maybe 2,500 to maybe a max of 4,000 trout per mile. 
And so there's astronomical numbers of, of fish for as small of a river as it is. Uh, so you, you can pretty much bet that if it's pretty good-looking water, there's probably not a fish. There's probably 30 of them. Uh, so if you're not, you know, if you're not catching some fish pretty quickly, you either need to change techniques or you need to change flies, and sometimes it's both. How to know when to do that is tough because, you know, as I'm guiding folks, you, you can see, you know, the, the, there are so many little things we can do wrong when we're fishing a river, and, and I'm not trying to say that I do them all right because I don't. Trust me, I'm learning it all the time. My fishing is constantly evolving. But, but trying to teach people with a little less experience than I have uh, how to gain more experience and get more effective at their fishing, it's always little, little things, little tricks as far as staying in contact, little tricks as far as reaching a little more, throwing a mend here or there, um, you know, high sticking a little bit more, getting a little closer, staying a little farther away. And you can't just say you have to always do this because every situation is different. Every run is different and every water flow on the river, it's different. So there's no easy answers there. But, you know, as far as, as yeah. far as uh, when to change and when to swap out, I change flies frequently. Uh, not, you know, not a ton, but I, I don't change patterns as much as I change weight. I change, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if you're an indicator nymphing, you'd be adding and subtracting shot and moving the indicator up and down. If you're euro nymphing, then you're going to be changing mostly weights or bead sizes of flies. You could also yeah. adapt the length of the tippet below the cider a bit, but we don't do a lot of that. We mostly change the flies and the angles of presentation. The more uh, horizontal angle will fish shallower and a, a you know angle of, of presentation and a more vertical angle will fish deeper so you can change that a bit without changing flies so you change those angles first and then if you're not getting down or if you're getting down too much then you have to change to lighter or heavier flies yeah 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 that uh, and that goes back to what you had said earlier where you weren't um you said it, it's less about the fly and, and really more about the presentation. Uh, so, mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's kind of, you're telling me then that, you know, uh, it, it's getting it in the right spot more so than it is uh, the actual fly. So, uh, and I, I, just, I was learning that more this summer, just fishing some really fast water and didn't realize how much weight it took to get down in these, in these, uh, you know, like below a diversion dam or something like that. A ton of weight you yeah, know, to yeah. get down there. Yes. And as soon as you got that, that, that amount of weight that you needed, you started catching fish. But you could stay there yeah. all day long <laughs> if you didn't have the, you know, the, the amount of weight. But I couldn't believe how, how much it took to get down where these fish were. You know? Yeah, so, and that's just um, one of the elements, right? If you're not getting right. a good, if you have a micro drag in addition to, you know, let's say you have enough weight, but you have micro drag because you're not managing your line well enough or something, then... Any one of those things, I tell people all the time, people come in the shop and say, I've tried the Provo. The Provo River gets a lot of pressure, so people are always convinced that it's fished out, even though there are way more fish than there should be per mile. So they'll come in, I think the Provo's fished out. Where else should I go? And you go, oh, the Provo's not fished out. There are, there are thousands of them. And they look hmm. at you crazy like you don't know what you're talking about, and you kind of say, look, the Provo River fish are very educated, so if, you, if you're not doing everything right, they ignore you all day long. But as soon as you yeah. start doing everything right, they start coming out of the woodwork and you're catching them like crazy. It's overcoming yeah. those little details that make all the difference. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of an interesting question. William Henry in New York, he says, there are a number of semi-automatic fly reels on the market. Has the American team ever used one in competition like the European teams? I didn't realize they were using uh, automatic reels. 
Well, the, there are some. There are a few European competitors that do. Most of them don't, oh. uh, but there are some okay. that do for sure. I haven't ever tried one in competition. I have tried them before, but I've never I've never fished one in a competition. Uh, I don't know if any of the American guys on the world team in a world championship have used them. I couldn't answer that for sure. I don't think that they have, but I know most of our guys have tried them. Uh, I don't, you know, there's there are quite a few of them out, so we haven't tried all of them necessarily. But I guess my biggest hang-up on most of them was the quality of them was that I the the two versions I've seen anywhere was not really what I was after and. For small trout, they would work pretty well, but the drag systems on them, they're trying to fight large, you know, western trout on very fine tip, but the drags were not smooth enough to meet my expectations. So that's, I guess, why I would argue they haven't become a standard piece of equipment for me. Uh, mm-hmm. They make mm-hmm. a lot of sense for some some purposes. They take up, he says, automatic, uh, semi-automatic. There, some people are going to think of like the old. Um, automatic style reels. They're not like that. They are a lever reel that you pull line off, and then when you want to get line back in, it's not spring-loaded. It's a lever mechanism that's kind of uh, turning the spool. You're pumping the lever, if you will, to make the line come oh, in instead of just holding yeah. the lever up and having a spring-loaded uh, spool retract the line. So there are some yeah. competitors that like that, uh, especially when they're dry fly fishing at longer distances because they can hook a fish, play the fish without the reel. You know, generally speaking, we're talking 14-inch or smaller fish for this type of technique. But mm-hmm. they'll fight it quickly on the by stripping in, not using the reel. And then while they're walking the fish, waiting the fish over to the controller to be counted and measured, they will pump the little lever to bring in slack on the on the line, on the reel. And it's uh, it's an efficient way to do that for sure. But um, yeah. I don't know why it hasn't really caught on here, but it hasn't. I think the part of the reason is that we oftentimes fish for some large trout around. Yeah, yeah. Um, time to take another quick break here, and I'll be right back, Lance, and we'll keep going here. So hang tight. Sounds great. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to Big Sky inflatables.com. Again, bigskyinflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Lance Egan about adaptive fly fishing. If you need, would like to ask a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, and send it, and we'll, we'll try to get it answered here on the show tonight. So, uh, Lance, there's two questions here. They, they basically are the same thing. Uh, Dan from North Dakota and Chuck from Northern California. They're both asking, I'll, I'll read Chuck's, it's a little bit uh, longer, when Fishing a new river for the first time, what are the steps and observations you take? Is there a type of water you fish first, a specific rig, specific flies, question mark? Yeah, that is a good question. It's one we get often. Uh, it's hard to answer because some of it just boils down to experience, but I, I guess the first things I would want to know about the river, I want to uh, check, check the water temperature to help me figure out which water types the fish might prefer. 
Uh, I want to know whether it's a tailwater or a freestone because that will sometimes change some of the flies that I think will be most productive. Uh, you know, for instance, a freestone river without a dam would maybe tend to grow some larger fly or larger, well, yes, larger insects and also um, probably fewer fish, but uh, more aggressive fish oftentimes, where a tailwater might have more fish that are more selective and tend to fish or tend to eat smaller food items. Again, I'm generalizing. There are always exceptions to every rule, but, uh, but those are things I would take into consideration. And then, uh, you know, water types, it's all going to boil down to time of year, and if I can, you know, if, if, nowadays you can do a lot of internet research on just about every river around and find relative densities of fish and look at flows and see if you're going to encounter high or low or average flows, and there's all kinds of information you can get from talking to a fly shop or a guide that's local, and, and then you can also just, you know, fish kind of instinctively based on your experience. If you get to a river and it reminds you of some other place you've already fished, then I would probably steer you towards the fly patterns and techniques and water types from the river that it reminds you of because there's probably a lot going on there that will, that will help you uh, narrow down which water to focus on and what patterns to use. Yeah, yeah. Um, Darren Mon in Montana, uh, he says, how do you adapt to missing takes on dry flies? I've had many rise, but none take. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure I understand. So he says he's missing takes, but then he's had lots of rise, but none take. So yeah, uh, if you're I, missing I'm, I'm take, thinking he's missing it. <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah, I'm thinking. If you're missing take, he may mean he's missing the, when they eat it, they're missing. He's not cooking them, right. I'm, I'm thinking. Because if he's not yeah. getting, you get them to rise, but they're not actually, uh, like they rise in the water column and they don't eat your fly, then you probably have micro drag on the fly or they don't like your pattern. But usually it's just micro drag because if you got them to look at it, they were pretty interested in it. They thought it was food at least for a second, right? So if you're missing takes, uh, dry flies, my, I can tell you my nemesis with dry flies is waiting long enough, uh, especially with slow, confident eats, um, you know, from larger fish. It'd be a little different if you're chasing 6 to 10-inch brookies in a high-altitude you know, high stream. They'll attack your fly with reckless abandon, and they oftentimes strike fast, and you can also strike fast. But on a you know, a brown trout that's a, a lazy sipping brown trout or a cutthroat or a rainbow that's, you know, selective and, and comes up with kind of methodically and slowly engulfs your fly. I think most of the time we have a tendency to see the fish come up in the water column and as soon as it opens their mouth, we go to setting the hook and it's usually too soon. You need to, to wait. And a lot of times you can wait a lot longer than you think. Uh, it's amazing how often... You can be fishing with people, and they'll look away from their dry fly for a half a second, and that's right when the fish eats. And then, you know, you're rowing a boat or something, and you yell at the guy fishing in the front, hey, hey, set, 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 and it's three or four seconds later, and they set, and there's still a fish there. Uh, I would argue you're yeah. better off to wait uh, rather than striking too soon. And then uh, the other thing is, like we were talking earlier, maybe select dry flies based on the, the size of the fish you're going to encounter if you fish a size mm -hmm. 10 stimulator and you're going to catch 10-inch trout, they're going to have a heck of a time fitting that size of fly in their mouth. And then consider the materials of the fly. A really stiff or bulky materials are hard for the trout to get around. A really soft or you know, smaller, lower-profile fly is easier for a smaller trout or even a bigger trout to just get into their mouth. So consider the type of fly you're fishing and then really, really wait on those hook sets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been experiencing that fishing a lake down from my house fishing uh, a pattern by Richard 
Pilatsky's, uh, his mouse. And that's, that's mm -hmm. a whole new hooking technique, you know, waiting for them to get yeah. that thing in their mouth. <laughs> and it's, yes. it's, it's, it, it drives you crazy waiting. <laughs> it seems like hours, you know, but it's only a second or two to get that in the mouth. But if you don't, you're pulling it out every time almost. So it's a whole new hooking technique that I'm, sure. I'm trying to learn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is interesting. Ed Constantini in uh, Wisconsin, he says, Lance, can you describe in what types of water you might resort to only one nymph instead of a dropper and a point fly? Good question. I know, Ed. How, how's it going, Ed? I hope you're well. Uh, well, how to uh, select. It's, uh, it's mostly a water type or, or accuracy thing for me. When you're fishing pocket water that's very small pocket water, and by that I mean usually a small stream with very narrow pockets, if you're fishing two flies that are spaced out, appropriately, which I most of the time fish my flies 20 to 24, maybe 26 inches apart when I'm fishing a two-nymph rig. With a Euro system anyway, with an indicator rig, you keep them closer. But I've guided Ed before, so I think he's referring to uh, Euro system. So let's go that route. So when I'm fishing uh, small pocket water, for accuracy purposes of casting and also for if you're fishing a tiny pocket, let's say the pocket is 12 to 18 inches wide, behind a rock, if you land one of your flies in the pocket and one of them that's 24 inches away from the other lands in any differing water speed, slower or faster, then neither of them get a good drift. So it's, it's important sometimes in really tight pocket water to fish a single nymph. Uh, when the fish are being really grabby, when they're eating, you know, they're, they're spooky or, or they're, they're striking really quickly, it's sometimes an advantage to have a single nymph because the two nymphs oftentimes counteract each other as far as strike detection goes. So you could do one then. And then the other time that I go to one nymph, uh, there's actually a great scene, if you want to call it that, a chapter in our adaptive, nymph or adaptive fly fishing video uh, where I'm covering a bank side live, the chapter on bank side lies. And I go to a single nymph because I need to cast around some overhangs and I'm landing the fly maybe... 20, 25 feet away from me, so relatively close, but right next to a bank with an undercut bank with fast water, maybe 12 inches, 10, 12 inches off the bank, and an undercut bank with a little 10, 12 inch window of slow water. So trying to get two flies to lay in there, avoid the fast water, and avoid the bank that will snag the fly is much harder than just putting a single nymph on there. So a single nymph, you know, is for accuracy mostly and control. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different here to try out tonight here, Lance. Um, folks, we have, uh, we're going to run out of time, but in Lance's uh, DVD, uh, they cover the chapters as he referred to them as uh, pocket water, riffles, runs, pools, glides, backside lies, and eddies. Um, do a little interactive thing here. Go to the, the first page on our website there where you can put in a question. And tell me which one you'd be most interested in, in listening to about how Lance approaches it. We might be able to get to two or three of these, but I want to see where the general interest is. So, again, the, the ones you can type in is pocket water, riffles, runs, pools, glides, bankside lies, as Lance was just talking about, and eddies. Mm -hmm. So, um, Put, just put one in, and I'll see what the general trend is, and then we'll go to that. Meanwhile, we'll answer a couple more questions while you guys do that. Um, okay, let's see. We had a couple uh, questions come in on the Internet here. In the meantime, Lance, let me grab a couple. Uh, uh, okay, 
Chuck in Placerville wants to know this. So does Don in Bozeman, Montana. Considering all the variables, what is the one type of fly and one uh, and and the one fly of that type that you would use if you could only take one fly to an unknown destination? We're assuming rivers, <laughs> <get> trout. <laughs> I suppose so. Well, I, I never like these questions because I wouldn't yeah. ever limit myself to one fly. So I don't like answer. I would, and if you were yeah. in the shop, I'd say, "Sorry, I can't answer that." No, there's no answer. Uh, well, you can do that I tonight mean, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, if you made me pick one fly for rivers, I would probably fit, pick a Frenchie, maybe a Frenchie or a thread Frenchie, something like that, just because like yeah. I've caught fish on them all over the globe, uh, picky yeah. tailwater fish as well as freestone fish. Uh, but yeah. I, I wouldn't limit myself to that. You know, people say, what's your favorite? If you had to pick one dry fly, I wouldn't. That would take all the fun out of it. I don't want, I don't want to pick one dry fly for the rest of my <laughs> yeah. life. There are too many yeah. fun ones to build and, and fun experiences to be had with lots of different patterns. It's funny, and, you know, that question's been asked to a lot of uh, the guests on the show. And, you know, usually it's either, you know, a pheasant tail, a hare's mm-hmm. uh, ear, or a parachute Adams. You know, it's like yep, yep. Uh, the old classic standbys, and then the Frenchie is just, a, a, you know, a, a deep-running pheasant tail. But it, it always seems to come back to those, you know, to those old favorites, yeah. which is interesting. Um, Confidence flies. Phil Cox and Murray wants to know when you're going to fish with him because he's getting old. <laughs> he is getting old. Well, <laughs> I know Phil. He's uh, anytime he's ready to row me down the Green River, we should we should go. But he's getting old. I should probably go soon so he doesn't expire. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> he said he does have another question. He says, uh, "How would you fish shallow water with a nymph if you were not uh, set up to to your own nymph?" Well, I would tell Phil to get off his duffer and learn how to urinate him first, because I know him and I can talk to him like that. But, but uh, no, ser- seriously, if, if you're uh, if you're going to fish an imp shallow and not urinate, then uh, a small indicator or my favorite would be a dry and a dropper uh, to fish an imp shallow. Uh, I think Phil is very familiar with that. He fishes a lot around here, and uh, you know, fishing something he likes to fish at Utah's Green River a lot. I would fish a hopper this time of year or a bigger ant pattern, foam ant pattern, and hang a little. Frenchy or something smallish behind the uh, the dry fly, and that would fish it pretty shallow. Okay, uh, Ken Barr in uh, Whitehall, Montana. He says fishing two dry flies. How far apart would you put them? Well, uh, that's a good question. In a river, I usually don't like to fish two dry flies. Uh, I know some people will disagree with me there, but I find when I fish two dry flies in a river. It has to be a pretty special setup river-wise to allow you to get a good drift with both of them. And if you're not getting a good drift with both of them, then you're not getting a good drift with either of them. So I I don't often fish two dry flies. The time that I do is on lakes, and I usually like to fish three dry flies. But you're not dealing Mm. with conflicting currents on lakes. Uh, When I fish them on lakes, I like to spread them out about five feet. So you cover a lot of water that way. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm getting getting answers now, man, which is... Interesting. Uh, we did, uh, Dustin in Las Vegas, you're asking about stillwater fishing. I would suggest, uh, just for lack of time, we can't get into that tonight, but go on, ask about fly fishing. Go to the podcast archive and type in lake, lakes, stillwater. Uh, you'll have Denny Rickards out there, all kinds of great information on that. So I suggest checking yeah. that out. Charlie Phelps, uh, she says, Lance, first off, I'm a huge fan of both your red and blue darts. Forgive me if this is off topic, but I enjoy hearing you talk a bit about what gear 
you have with you when you get on the water for three to eight hours. I'm curious if you prefer a sling pack, chest pack, other type of pack. Are you continuously tinkering with what you bring or wear um, on the water, or have you settled on gear that seems to work best for you? Any other great gear thoughts uh, you'd like to share? He'd be uh, interested to hear. So. Yeah, so, uh, well, I appreciate that. I love the red darts and blue darts especially, too. They're some of my favorite flies. So as far as what I use on, on as far as a gear, you know, carrying device, I'm a fan of a chest pack. My favorite right now is the Umqua Overlook pack. It's kind of a front and back pack that has the, the majority of the holding capacities in the front, and it's uh, it, it rests, you know, the weight is placed on your shoulders, so you're not wearing anything around your waist or you're not wearing anything around your neck. Um, so it's it kind of front and back resting on your shoulders. It's high, so you can wade quite deep. And then uh, I just like the way it's set up. It's really easy to get boxes in and out of. Um, it's It carries a net. I don't like slings. That's We sell a lot of slings, so I must be a, an outcast here. I'm an outcast in lots of ways, but... The slings for me um, don't have a good option for a net, and I like fishing with a net, so they're kind of out for me. As far as chest backs, though, that Umpqua Overlook is the go-to for me. Uh, we have actually a YouTube channel for, from Fly Fish Food where we show how we set up our Umpqua Overlooks um, with tippet holders and nets and that kind of thing. As far as other gear systems that I've settled on, he's asking about... Uh, you know, I'm always tinkering with that kind of stuff. I would say the, the thing that's the biggest takeaway for most people when they when I guide them and also when they see that YouTube video and they see us fishing in both Devin and I in our, our nymphing and, and adaptive fly fishing videos is the way that we have our nets set up that's really efficient so you can quickly access the net, but it's completely out of your way while you're fishing. Um, you can see those, how we've done that in our videos, or again, there's some, some stuff on our YouTube channel. Um, but the net system, uh, I would say, is probably the, the biggest thing that I've kind of settled on, and that I use a retractor uh, connected to the back of the pack, a net retractor, heavy-duty net retractor. That, so you just pull the net out, land the fish, and then when you want to let go of the net, it just zips up back behind you. Now, what, uh, what I was out actually looking for those today because I was noticing it, that, that you guys were using. What kind of, uh, is there a brand of that retractor, or is that something you guys Yeah, yeah, there's a, it's called Gear, Gear Keeper Net Retractor. We sell them on our website. Um, Gear Keeper is the brand. It's a really high quality. I think they're about $25, so it's not the cheapest retractor you'll ever buy, but if you buy a cheap retractor to hold up your net, you're going to be unhappy with it. Um, I've been using the same one for like 15 years, and it hasn't failed me yet. I've bought a couple of others to put on. You know, my guide pack has a different one than my personal pack, and I've bought a, a backup, but I've never had to use the backup. They're fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another question kind of just came in going along the lines of gear. Do you, uh, Chris in Raleigh, North Carolina, do you carry multiple rods when you fish? Do you want to switch back and forth between nymph, uh, dry, streamer, or, or do you just adjust one rod rig? Uh, that's a good question. It depends a bit on what I'm doing. I, if I'm fishing a big river, you know, I tend to fish, I tend to bring several rods with various rigging, various techniques. Uh, you know, maybe a streamer rod, a dry dropper rod, a dry rod, and occasionally a nymph rod. I don't tend to nymph from the boat very much. But if I'm wade fishing, uh, I mostly fish with one rod when I wade fish. I often have different lines on spools or reels in my pack. So if I were you know, nymphing along and encounter a hatch, I would switch my reel out from my Euro nymphing line to a standard three or two weight line with a long dry fly leader. 
And, you know, that process takes less than two minutes to clip a couple of nymphs off, reel the line in, uh, attach a new spool, string the line through the guides with a leader already on it, tie a dry fly on your fishing in just a couple of minutes. So I don't tend to like to carry two rods, but other people do, certainly, um, or three rods for that matter. If there's a time, there are times where I, I, you know, I've been on the water a bunch and I'm expecting a hatch at a certain time of the day, then I oftentimes bring a, a nymphing rod that, that's rigged in the morning and then let's say the hatch, you know, the PMDs are going to hatch at 3 or something. Then maybe 2 o'clock I'll pull the, the second rod out of my pack, you know, I haven't built it yet, and just put the, put the rod together, string the line through the guides, put a dry fly on so that I'm ready as soon as the risers start to show up. And then as soon as the hatch kind of dissipates, I oftentimes put it away because I don't enjoy carrying multiple rods up the side of the river. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, another question from the Internet. Uh, Matt in Lakewood, Colorado says, how frequently or do you guide, and how far in advance should, I, should a person reserve a guided day with you? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I'm actually trying to scale down my guiding at the moment, so... Uh, I don't guide very often. I, I have never been a full-time guide. I have, uh, I've been kind of a part-time guide, sometimes really, really part-time uh, since I was – I did my first guiding when I was like 17, 18, somewhere in there. And then I didn't do very much of it for – I would do, you know, a handful of trips a year for many years. And then just the last five or six years, I've started taking on more. But I'm uh, I'm actually trying to cut it back. So I was getting booked out about two years in advance for the last little while. This last year, I stopped taking uh, reservations because I just didn't know what I was doing that far out of my life, uh, <laughs> yeah, vacation-wise. And my wife works as well, and so uh, you know we were having a hard time scheduling vacations and stuff. And so anyway, I've started to uh, cut that back. So right now, I'm you know it's it's August, and I'm booking basically January of next year, but I'm. I'm really trying not to, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm trying to okay. cut it back so that I'm not guiding too much. Uh, sure, you have plenty but, uh, of other uh, good guides at Fly Fish Food, though, uh, to set them up with as well, right? There are plenty of other local guides we can get you in touch with. Yeah, yeah. if you're looking for a yeah. trip and you want to go with me, send me an, an email or send me a message on social media. You know, we can try and figure out a time. But if, if uh, I can't do it, which is oftentimes the case, uh, I have several other guides I work with that can get you uh, into some fish, too. Good, good. Okay, so uh, our little poll came up with a tie with Riffles and Bankside Lies, and then uh, second place was Eddie's, and then third place was Glide. So let's start in with Riffles um, um, and talk about those. The First of all, define Riffles for us so that we're all on the same page there, Lance. Riffles, uh, just you know, shooting from the hip, I would say they are relatively fast, uh, bumpy or kind of choppy water in a riffle. They often are the head of a pool or leading into a pool. Uh, they don't always lead into a pool, but oftentimes do, or maybe into a run instead of a pool. But uh, choppier water, you know, medium depth. They can be fairly shallow, uh, but they can also say like be, you can have a riffle. one to three feet. That, that would be most common, certainly. I mean, yeah. some of our larger yeah. western rivers, you have riffles that are 10, 12 feet deep for sure. But, but I think yes, most the, most commonly you're going to see riffly water that is probably less than four or five feet deep, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. And where do the fish hold? Boy, that's a hard, that's a loaded question. They hold everywhere in the riffle, right? <laughs> in, their, in their right water temps, they are everywhere in riffles. Uh, you know, they could be really behind cold, any rock, probably, right? 
That's right. Yeah, the reason they're there is that it's got a I mean, slowed flow near the bottom. It's uh, It looks fast on the surface, but it's not nearly as fast near the river bottom. And there's a lot of food there. There's a lot of oxygen there. So, you know, they can be anywhere in a riffle. They certainly, you know, in colder water temps would be nearer to the back end of the riffle, probably more like right where the riffle dissipates and slows. But as we've hmm. talked a couple times today, there are lots of times when the water's warm where they'll be right at the very head of a riffle. Uh, when I'm guiding folks, you're on nymphing, I have to tell them all the time to finish with the cider up off the water because you're going to get a strike as soon as the flies hit the water. And they look at you like you're crazy. But it happens all day long that the flies hit the water and it does. it's not a second that goes by and there's a fish on it. Uh, hmm. So I know that they're right at the very top of all those drop-offs quite frequently. And uh, what setup works best? Uh, best is always relative, right, Roger? I think uh, I think I would argue the best setup is a Euro-nymphing setup for Riffley water uh, because the surface is moving faster, significantly faster in the bottom. It is in basically any you know ha trout habitat in the river, but but in a riffle in particular, the larger substrate that's causing the bouncy is really slowing the flow near the bottom, and the surface looks very fast. So anything that you're tethered to the surface on your rig, whether that be an indicator or a dry fly. Uh, you know, dry dropper anyway is is going to be pulling your nymphs faster than you really want them to be moving. So mm. a single dry fly in a riffle, you know, if there are fish that are willing to rise, would be very effective uh, because then the dry fly is imitating, you know, the fly that you're fishing is imitating the naturals that would also be at the mercy of the surface current. Versus when you're nymphing, I think you're best off with the euro setup because you don't have anything that's tethered to the surface. You have just thin tippet connecting your visual cider, your colored line, colored uh, leader material, let's call it, to your flies. And so you're lessening the effects of the, that fast current at the surface with the Euro rig. So I think it's the best in that situation. Okay. And you had talked, started to talk about how to work a riffle. Do you mm -hmm. work it bottom up or top down or is, is, does it make any difference? Yeah, I would argue it's best usually to work it from the bottom up. Uh, the fish are facing into the current. You want to approach from downstream most of the time, down or down and across, and try and stay in their blind spot. Although it's you know you could argue in a riffle that with the broken choppy surface that they are much less spooky. You know, especially if it has a little bit of depth. If it's a really shallow riffle, then you got to stay away from a little ways. But most of the time, uh, getting as close as possible to not scare the fish, but allow the best presentation possible, and then working from downstream to upstream. And then uh, I would argue nearest to far, too. You know, left right. to right, you want to fish closest to you first and then work further away from you after that. Right, right, yep, okay. And how, well, you had mentioned euro-nymphing or a single dry fly, because uh, my next question was, you know, how do you handle the conflicting currents that you might have mm -hmm. in a riffle? Yeah. So with the euro-nymphing setup, that's pretty easy because you're just high-sticking it, so you're, you're, right. not, and you're not dealing with any conflicting currents. Everything's in the air. That's one of the reasons that's so effective. Is with a dry fly, you're going to have to handle conflicting currents with men's. Uh, ideally, I like to do those with aerial men's where you're setting up a cast with the mend built in as soon as the line lands. If that won't work or isn't possible based on where you're, you know, your approach angle then you can throw a dry fly out and mend it after it's landed to achieve a, a you know, dead drift in what you deem the best part of the riffle. Um, but ideally, you can throw aerial mends at least to buy you some time of drag-free dead drift before you have to mend again. Because oftentimes when there's you know, drastically 
conflicting currents, you're going to have to do more than one min. You'll have to do several mins throughout each presentation. Right, right. Question came in that kind of relates to this. Ben and Chalice, I don't know where Chalice is, but uh, he says, what's your, your own nymphing leader setup? What about favorite indicator setup and with weight on the line instead of weighted flies? Do you ever drop shot nymph? Did you get all that? Do I line? ever, yes. Okay. I think so. I, I, yeah, I mean, I do drop shot nymph. I, I haven't for a long time. Um, I used to do it quite a bit. Uh, it's still very effective, and in the right water types, it's absolutely deadly. Uh, most of our local guides do that sort of thing. They call it Pro River Bounce, right, the, the drop shot type rig with weight on the bottom and flies on tag ends. Um, I, it's not my favorite. It's it, I would argue it's the best way to stay in one place for a long time and keep catching fish uh, in faster, deeper flows, faster, deeper water. I tend to like to cover water a lot more with my clients because I can't stand just being in one run for three or four hours. Uh, mm -hmm. But most of the guys locally, that's their, that's what how you know how they catch all their fish is hanging out in one or two runs over the course of the day and just you know bounce nymphing with weight on the bottom and flies on tags and, and getting them down deep and slow. Okay. Okay. Um, and. Um yeah, so that was the drop shot. But he also asked about your, your favorite indicator setup, and uh, would you prefer weight on the line instead of weighted flies? Huh. Well, uh, I would probably prefer a little bit of both. depends on the situation. My favorite indicator, I like yarn indicators. Uh, they're a little more sensitive. The exception would be in the wintertime when it's freezing, then yarn's not so good. Then I would probably use a thing in the bobber, an airlock, or something like that. But Mm -hmm. uh, yarn indicators are my favorite for the way that they hit the water. Uh, they still float well. They're very sensitive. Uh, as far as weight in the flies are on the line, again, depends on what you want to do. I would tend to, because most of my nymph boxes for the last almost 20 years have been geared more towards hero nymphing stuff, most of my flies, that I, my fly boxes that I used to indicator nymph with that are largely you know, unweighted, unbeaded flies, I don't really even take with me in there. They are no longer confidence flies, even though they used to be confidence flies. So I would probably, right now, if you said, let's go indicator nymphing tomorrow, I'm going to mostly rely on weight in the flies. But okay. most people yeah. that haven't got into Euro nymphing uh, don't have the selection of weight and sizes of flies needed to get down in different situations. So in that case, you would want to use weight on the leader. And I would prefer it on the bottom. So the I think the preferred nymphing setup, if I'm going to indicator nymph, is that drop shot or bounce rig with weight on the bottom, and if you're fishing two flies, flies on tag ends, not tied in line, and then having an indicator up the leader. And the other important thing to, to point out there is the leader construction. It's not very effective, and again, it's not, I don't want to say you can't catch fish this way because you certainly can, but it's less effective to buy a tapered leader off the shelf at your local fly shop and connect some tip it to it and put your indicator up on the 30-pound butt section than it is to run to build your own nymphing leader and make the majority of the leader thin tip it rather than thick butt section. So when you buy a 10-foot leader, you're buying, you know, four feet, four and a half feet of it that's uh, maybe even five feet if it's a 10-foot leader of 30-pound butt section. And that doesn't sink very well. It, it has a lot of surface area, so the faster current near, near the river surface is going to pull it downstream, et cetera, et cetera. I did an article for Fly Fisher Magazine called Low and Slow that you might be able to Google up and, and read an article on that. But it, ha it shares some leader setups for indicator nymphing that are 
you know, a maxima butt section that's relatively short and thinner than most production tapered leaders, and then terminating in a tippet ring. You keep the indicator right near the tippet ring, and then uh, you have just straight tippet, you know, 2x, 3x, 4x tippet extending down, and then you attach five or six or whatever tippet you want to your flies to the bottom of that. But that type of a setup would get down a lot faster and keep you in better contact uh, for yeah, strike detection. Yeah. Good, good. Um, okay, we'll move to uh, bank side lies, and we'll talk about those. The rest of these uh, methods, techniques, and so forth, you'll just have to go get uh, Lance's DVD. Uh, have adaptive fly fishing. <laughs> That's right. Adaptive fly fishing, uh, because it's uh, as much as I like doing podcasts. There's nothing like watching these guys catch fish and using the methods that they're telling you about. So uh, I highly encourage you to to go out and get that. We've got it on the homepage of our website. You can get it there. You can get it at Fly Fish Food, wherever, um, and uh, Amazon, I assume too, as well. So, um, so we've got um, bankside lies. So. You were talking about this before, when, and I think the scene in there is when you're doing a helicopter cast. Is that the scene That's that you were exactly talking right. about? Okay, yeah, so you memory. want to go mm -hmm. through that with them? Yeah? Yeah, sure. So the bankside lies, uh, you know, what is a bankside lie, I guess, first and foremost? It's uh, obviously near the bank, usually where the river bottom and the river bank are the two areas that really slow the, uh, the flow because of the friction that the water encounters when it, it, when it meets an obstruction, be that a rock on the bottom or a rock on the bank or, uh, you know, uh, tree roots or just dirt and, and debris on a normal stream bank, um, it's going to slow the flow there, and that's going to create an area that, that fish like to be. Uh, they like to hang in that type of an area. You've got, on a bank, you've got overhanging brush oftentimes, willows or trees. So you've got shade. You have protection from predators. You have food that can fall in from above and also the food that's coming to you from the river. So it's a great place to be. Uh, it's often slowed flow, so you can, you know, as a trout, you can use less energy to hang there. So, you know, your next question on there, Roger, is where do the fish hold? And that is, of course, right on the edge. Uh, if it's deep, they might be near the bottom, but a bankside lie can vary from, you know, 10 inches deep to 10 feet deep, probably in a large river. Uh, which setups work best? A lot of that varies depending on how. Uh, you know, how wide of, a, of the bankside lie is. If it's a bankside lie that's four or five feet wide, then you could do a, a wide range of techniques. If it's 10 or 12 inches wide, you're going to have to use uh, what we were talking about earlier with a single nymph or a single dry fly and try and keep it in on that really narrow, slow seam as, as long as possible. Um, or potentially, I guess, if, if it's a big bankside lie, you could work uh -huh. it with streamers as well, right? So, totally. I mean, yeah, you could. That's yeah. why. That's what I'm saying. You could do streamers. Yeah. You could do a, an indicator nymph rig. You could your own nymph it. You could dry dropper. You could fish a single dry. You know, if it's larger, it opens it up to everything. If it's a really narrow window of opportunity in there, you got to be very accurate so you're not hanging up in the brush and you're not hanging up on the bottom, but you're getting the fly where flies into that uh, narrow window and giving the trout an opportunity to eat them. So the yeah, setup that works best is is based yeah, you're clipping the. Uh, excuse me. Your clip in the uh, in the DVD was very tight. It looked like, as far as the DVD was concerned. I mean, it looked like what? Yeah, you very had a much foot, so. Foot and a half. Yeah. Okay. Just, yeah, uh, I would I would say ten or twelve inches. It was quite tight. Yeah. For sure. It took me several yeah, casts, as yeah. you might recall, to get the fish out of there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead and then talk about uh, how you work that that lie. So uh, working a bankside lie. 
Yeah, you gotta you gotta think about approach. You gotta think about you know if you're fishing a dry fly on a regular a standard dry fly setup, then it would probably be best to approach from immediately downstream so that you can lay as much of your fly line and leader in that same slowed flow, that same uh, edge, if you will, the same current speed as where your fly is going to land to lessen the amount of drag that you're going to get. If you were fishing a nymph rig, as I did in the video, then I waited as close as I dared to uh, out into the river to uh, still get a good drift and be able to make the cast uh, accuracy-wise and have control of the fly once it's there, but not so close that I scared the fish before I got to present a fly to it. Uh, so, you know, you got to think about approach, and, and approach plays into which technique you're using. You know, a streamer, you might approach from more farther upstream uh, or across, uh, but most of the time you're going to be casting down and across, so you're going to be upstream of that bankside lie, throwing a cast into it, and then you have to consider how fast is the water between yourself and there. Do you need to, to land the fly with an aerial mend upstream to allow the fly to stay in that bankside lie longer? Or is it wide enough that if you make just a straight cast in there that it will kind of swing across the, the bankside lie? There's all kinds of variables that you know, every situation is different. But uh, think about approach for sure. And then as far as handling the conflicting currents, again, that's based on the technique. And uh, with a streamer, you could, like I say, you could throw men's up or downstream or across stream, uh, left or right, to speed up or slow down the, the, the speed of the streamer as it travels across the river. You could um, approach from the side with a, a Euro rig and just high stick over the conflicting currents. And if you're fishing a dry and a dropper with a long leader or a Euro system, you could do the same. If you're fishing a dry dropper on a regular leader, you're going to have to um, usually throw an aerial mend to get the fly in there and then uh, try and make as many micro mends during the presentation as possible to leave the fly in that bankside lie as long as possible to lure the fish out of its holding area. Needless to say, it's not one of the, the easier <laughs> approaches and presentations that, that you'll be doing on the river, right? Uh, no, so none many, of them really so are, though. <laughs> none yeah, of them are. Every single one. I don't think, yeah. any, I mean, you think about an eddy, should you fish it from downstream or upstream? That's always dependent on, you know, with the, the technique you're going to use. A streamer might have, you know, you might need a different approach to the streamer than you would a dry fly, right, as far as yeah. Yeah. approaching from yeah. up or downstream. They're all situational, so you just have to learn which which is going to be best based on how you're going to fish the particular piece of water. And usually you've already made a decision as far as which technique is going to be the best to, to cover that piece of water. That's what adaptive fly fishing, that's what our video is all about, is trying to show you all these different water types and then trying to give you ideas of ways to, you know, when we fish glides, we don't, we don't just fish glides with dry flies, we show you how to fish glides with streamers as well to, because we... Not everybody fishes one way. A lot, you know, most most really good anglers are are quite good at streamers, dries, dry dropper, nymphing, et cetera, et cetera. Versus most, uh, you know, one trick ponies, as our friend George Daniel right. likes to say, uh, are only good at nymphing or only good at dry fly fishing or right. whatever. So to, to be able to to effectively cover as much water as possible and maximize your catch each day on the water, you need to be able to learn to approach all these different water types with various techniques based on the time of year and situation and and then also throwing in your preferences. Some people just love to only fish dries or only fish streamers or what have you. So you can, uh, you know, in our first two videos, we did basically strictly nymphing, and uh, there's a little bit of dry and dry dropper in them too, but 
this last video adaptive we do a little bit more of everything nymphs drives and streamers so it's not not so focused in on one technique yeah you've got uh, kind of an arsenal of techniques to pull from and uh, like you say you know you said earlier you know you're all you're still learning out there I mean people would look to you and say my gosh he's, he's got this down pat but uh, <laughs> every day's a new challenge right and uh, I guess that's We're why we, we all learning. like this yeah we, we that's right we all like learning and we all like uh, being outdoors and, and having a challenge so um, that's what it's all about but uh, well we're, so we're run out of time here and but hang with me a bit longer here because we're going to give away a few prizes and both uh, membership to Fly Fishers International and a subscription to Fly Fishing and Time Journal and of course your uh, yours and uh, Devin Olson's uh, DVD uh, slash video adaptive fly fishing strategies for diverse water types and uh, as uh, Lance said earlier um, if you win this he'll be happy to supply you with either a DVD or access to the online version right Lance that's uh, that's correct those. yeah whoever wins yeah. could choose a DVD or we can get them a digital version digital download either way whichever they prefer okay good one more thing and we'll start giving away those prizes so hang tight with me and listen closely the Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. Pebble mine still remains a threat to the region and two million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Thousands of fishermen and 31 Alaskan native tribes depend on Bristol Bay every day. Pebble mine is, will poison Bristol Bay and over 10 billion tons of toxic waste which threatens to destroy their livelihoods. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers just released their final environmental impact statement, opening the door for a permit to build Pebble Mine. The only way to stop it is to act now. So anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit savebristolbay.org forward slash tell President Trump. Again, savebristolbay.org forward slash tell President Trump. There you'll learn more about the efforts to stop this uh, this mine, and you can voice your concern, tell our president to, to stop it, and uh, it's a way for you to get involved and, and participate. So check it out. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that link, leave your comments. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away some prizes here. So the winners of our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register by now, it's too late now, but uh, do so for our next show so that you have a chance to win them. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how you're going to receive your prize. So first thing up, one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, flyfishersinternational.org. So I've got my database fired up here, and we'll do this random selection. And our winner for this is Carl Palmer. Carl Palmer. So congratulations, Carl. And uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy that membership. FFI is a great organization to, to support and be part of. And then we've got um, the one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And you can learn more about that at amatobooks.com. Amatobooks.com is a great source for books on fly fishing and so forth. So uh, check them out, see what they have to go. And our winner for that is uh, 
Charles Rogers, and he's in South Carolina, Charles Rogers. So congratulations, Charles, and I uh, hope you enjoy that subscription and um, uh, check out uh, what uh, Amato Books has to offer. So now we'll give away, uh, courtesy of Lance Egan, a copy of Adaptive Fly Fishing and um, Strategies and Diverse Water Types. So uh, I'll tell you, it's uh, a lot of good information in there. If you don't win tonight, go buy it. It's, uh, it'll be well worth your hard-earned pennies. So let's uh, see. Um, I won't make this too hard. Let me just clear my queue. Uh, uh, so, okay. So question is, um, Lance mentioned a river in Utah that many people think there are no fish in that has plenty of fish. What's the name of the river? That should be pretty easy, huh, Lance? Yes. Yeah, that should be really easy. <laughs> really, really. And while we're so, waiting for uh, the answer, if I might, Roger, can I can I intervene for just a sec? Yeah, no, we have the, time uh, to wait the, for the day. Perfect. Yeah, go ahead. The, video, the videos that we've produced, uh, Devin and I seem to get most of the credit, but really all the credit goes to Gilbert Rowley, who uh, basically produces and, and edits them. He's on the labels of all of them. He's not, he's not uh, behind the rod, but he's behind the camera on all of them. So it takes uh, a special eye to be able to see, to be able to know what needs to be captured and then be able to show that to the viewers to really help everybody learn. So I just wanted to give a shout-out to Gilbert in addition to, to Devin as uh, my partners in, in these videos. So thanks for letting me do that. Sure, yeah, and, you know, yeah, kudos because um, – I was watching it this afternoon, and and Julie looked over my shoulder and goes, "Wow, that's really good photography." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, yeah that's Gilbert. That's, <laughs> so that's Gilbert's Gilbert, magic yeah. right there. That's right. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you did give him credit for that because um, that I always tease that if any, if Gilbert can make me look good, then he has a lot of skill. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'm pretty. I'm pretty rough. <laughs> okay, so uh, well, we've got a winner here. I, it's, uh, I think it's uh, Provo. That's it, right? That's right, right Lance. That's right. It's Phil the Provo Cox River. That's correct. Phil Cox and Murray, who supplied some questions tonight, and uh, he did participating. So um, that's good, Phil. Hey, good, good listening, good taking notes, and uh, we have many others coming in here too. Um, Dave, Phil McCartney. Uh, Dave, David Dillon, so lots, lots of people getting it right there, uh, but the first one in was Phil Cox, so congratulations, Phil. Right. Hey, Phil, fill out that same form and send me your address. I've got your name. I've got your um, email address now, so just send me your shipping address so we can get that shipped out and or indicate if you want the, the digital version rather than the DVD, let me know that, and then um, Lance will get you hooked up with that, so uh, Listen, by, Roger, by we, that we, know, we know that he, uh, he's, he's, he's expressed this earlier. He's old school. He's about to expire. He's going to want a DVD copy. There's no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he did have a further comment that says old and wise. Uh, he, and he, wise. He, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I didn't share that with you, but uh, remember that part, Lance. <laughs> good fun. Good so fun. Good. Well, good, good uh, if you already have a copy, Phil, then you can share it with somebody else. But it sounds like you need the instruction from what Lance is inferring, so... Uh, uh. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He's, he's a, he's a well-rounded angler, for sure. He is. Okay. Okay. Lots of fun. 
All right. Well, hey, Lance, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it was great, and thanks for sharing all your knowledge. Uh, we picked your brain a bit, uh, but there's still some out there. So, uh, folks, go get his DVD and uh, check it out. Uh, but thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Yeah, thanks a lot for the opportunity, Roger. It was great fun, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Uh, should you do some shows about fishing in Utah. That's uh, That would be something to that I haven't done. So that's uh, something to look forward to as well. So anyway, thanks again. Hopefully all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. Uh, it says podcast archive. Go in that archive. You'll find over, I think it's close to 320 shows now that we've done. Uh, you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, you know, like trout, tarpon, Madison River, Euro nymphing, contact nymphing, and you'll you'll be amazed at the the kind of content that we have out there in the archive. So much to learn. So check it out. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Our next broadcast will be on September 2nd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll be interviewing Charlie Craven, and the topic for the show will be tying streamers, tips and techniques. Uh, Charlie is a master fly tire and has figured out the best fly tying techniques for just about any challenge. Uh, his latest book, Tying Streamers, addresses the techniques used to tie both classic and modern stream patterns. Charlie is always a great source for good tips on tying, so join us to find out what he's discovered about the best way to tie streamers. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well.